Everyone, it is a delight to be back with you again this evening. I hope you are all well. Muffin Man, how do you do? Tenacia, Heart Hook, Big Mama. Uh, let's see, I know we had somebody new in here before. Uh, traumatized Mortal. Hello. Uh, I hope not terribly traumatized. I'm going to call you Mortal. <laughs> mortal, I am glad you are, uh, I'm glad you're coming to hang out. Good to see you. Plague Deity for, uh, for 11 months. One more month till the year. Let's go. Indeed. Indeed. Quite the number. Quite the number, Plague Deity. Um, Y'all, thank you so much for coming to hang out tonight. Uh, I want to say hello to uh, uh, Sir David Good Vibes. I don't know if you're in right now, but uh, you popped in a little earlier, so good to see you. Um, and then, of course, uh, I want to say thank you again to our raiders from yesterday. Uh, we had a raid from Sensei Suplex, and uh, they came, they hung out, and uh, they they checked out the stream, uh, which is fantastic because we are doing some fun stuff. I'm going to talk more about it later in the stream, but uh, if you all want to know a little bit more about Castle Vesperal, um, and, uh, the Haunted Hogwarts campaign we're going to be running, uh, do let me know. It's not in Hogwarts, that's just sort of a tonal reference, but I'll talk more about it later. Um, that's our Wednesday campaign. I hope you check it out. Folks, it is good to see you all. Um, let's see, what's been going on with y'all and what's been going on with me? Because I know that's the question that typically follows. Um, basically, I've just been keeping an eye on Twitter, keeping a close eye on Twitter. Uh, Cy Vengeful, hello, hello. Uh, thank you very much for the Prime subscription. Howdy to you. How do you do? Uh, I hope everything's alright on your end, Cy Vengeful. Uh, don't, uh, I, I don't. <laughs> uh, don't, don't scuff your boots on the way in. Howdy, Cy. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have leaned in quite so hard on that one. Uh, Big Mama, Heart Hook. I hope y'all are having a great one. Um... Uh, what have y'all been up to this week? Like I said, I've been just mostly keeping my eye on Twitter, keeping my eye on uh, the uh, the East. <laughs> mm. And it's a warm one here. It's starting to heat up, so I'm going to have to remember to keep myself hydrated. I'm uh, going to have to remember to <laughs> turn on the AC. As a matter of fact, I might as well do that just for a, just for a spell. Whilst, uh, whilst we get started here. Let's see. There we go. Okay, cool. Let that uh, let that pump out. I mean, a little bit of cool air for the next 10, 15 minutes or so. Um, what have y'all been doing? What have you been up to? Plague says, "I'm so excited. I got off work early enough to watch live." Welcome back, Plague D, to the live business. Uh, traumatized mortal is doing homework. What kind of homework you got, mortal? Sai says, I never got a chance to catch streams, but I'm caught up and I'm off work today, so here I am. Excellent. Excellent to hear. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely love it when people can catch it live. I know, like, you know, for the, those folks who are catching it later on, that is absolutely fine, but it is great to have y'all in here. It's good to see you. Uh, oh, I see. I see, mortal. I'm sorry to hear that. Big Mama says, I started a new job this week. I guess they agreed I'm cute as a button. Okay. Hey, you got it. Big Mama, hey. See, I knew that wasn't too much of a misstep. I think it was a good display of like, as long as it's sort of like, as long as that wasn't, you know, a weird thing for you to say about yourself. If it was within your character, then I think it's good to, you know, I, I think it's good to 
display a bit of your personality like that because hopefully that means you are going to be in there at a position that they're gonna that that's gonna fit you a little bit better. So, Big Mama, I am I am very happy to hear that. Uh, congratulations to you. Oh goodness, that's such good news. Um, but yeah, Cy Vengeful, uh, Plague, y'all are in from uh, in from work. I'm glad y'all got off early enough. Um, yeah, Cy Vengeful says, I absolutely love the Hunger Games, so I'm glad I can be here for the live discussion, finally. Well, yeah, and last week was a hard one to catch because we had, um, uh, last week we we had like a really short stream. I think it was just because there was a lot of action, and so I typically read a little bit more quickly. Um, in addition to that, I often sort of like speed up when there's other stuff going on kind of in life, and we talked about that last week. But um, yeah, last week it just zipped by so quickly. Um, we're doing another three chapters today, but I think this is going to be the last kind of sh especially shorty one. Um, today is going... So last week was uh, 10... Uh, honestly, this week is within five words of the length of last week. Uh, and so it's going to be another short-ish one, but we also have some sound bites. Uh, and I may uh, pop in. We may do some, some uh, Tales of Beetle the Bard later, perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah, mortal. Happier things are ahead, I hope, as well. Um, and Birdie Rage, hello. Welcome to the stream. Uh, I hope you are ready for some Hunger Games. Good to have you here. Um, if y'all are looking for the back episodes, um, or really anything, you can go ahead and use the links command, and that's going to take you over to the Discord, where we have a, a full channel dedicated to playlists, uh, which will include uh, all the stuff that is currently available online, uh, old episodes of this, old episodes of uh, other stuff, including Harry Potter, Percy Jackson, uh, all sorts of stuff, uh, Frankenstein, um, our some of our Dungeon World adventures, yeah, lots of good stuff. Um, but today we are reading chapters 16, 17, and 18 of The Hunger Games Book 1. Um, now, I don't know if y'all have been keeping track. I don't know if y'all have been uh, playing along at home, but I believe I mentioned a couple of times sort of the formatting of this. So let me, let me do some quick math for you here. There are nine chapters in each section. We do three chapters per stream, and so each section is three streams long. The fact that we're coming up, uh, that, that today we're going to be reading 16, 17, and 18 means that these are the last chapters of part two of this book. Uh, and we are about to enter the final part, part three. So I don't know if y'all are aware of the action that is going to take place. I don't know if y'all know what the plans are uh, for these coming chapters. What Katniss intends to do next about the, about the career tributes and the, the sort of monopoly that they're holding on all of the supplies here in the arena. Hmm. Hmm. Good luck, everybody. It's going to be a big one. Mortal says, I actually found you through Spotify. I started on Sea of Monsters. That is interesting. Um, I don't know of a lot of people finding me through Spotify. Uh, yeah, uh, Mortal, I'm actually kind of curious about that. Could you tell me, like... Did you did I did like a playlist pop up for you? How did you how did you find me on Spotify? So eventual says, "Ooh, I've never read the table. Uh, I've re never read the tale, so that sounds amazing." And uh, Sparkle Lovegood subscription for seventeen months. How delightful! Thank you so very much. Um, and boy, I, I got to tell y'all something. It is great to have people in here again. I think I think Percy Jackson was just a little young for this stream. 
Um, this one is definitely skewing older, and uh, I, frankly, I'm just excited for the reception that it's had. You know, we had other bumpy stuff going on as well, so that may have played a part of it, but just, you know, on my end, all I know is, you know, when, when chat is hopping, when there are a lot of viewers in, or when chat is not hopping, or there are not a lot of viewers in, and so I'll just say I'm very happy to be reading The Hunger Games. Um, I think I think people are enjoying them, and that is really good for me to hear. Um, okay. Well, gang, without any further ado, let's talk a bit of review, and then get into our chapters 1, 3, and 2. I wanted to do a little bit of rhyming there. That clearly didn't work. That was a nightmare. However... We do review, nonetheless. Um, chapters, let's see, 13, 14, and 15. Chapter 13, um, uh, basically, the plan, right? The plan with the tracker jackers. Katniss encounters the career tributes, and they sort of run her up a tree. She is hanging out up in this tree while they make a camp below and plan to kill her in the morning. But then she encounters another tribute. It's Rue from District 11. She appears to be an incredible tree climber, and when Rue points out this uh, this this uh, wasp nest, Katniss makes this plan, and Rue skitters away through the trees. Katniss drops this tracker jacker nest down onto the career tributes, which includes PETA for this moment. Um, and these aren't just regular wasps. These things will sting to the point where they'll kill you. The tracker jacker venom makes you like hallucinate. They are really, really terrible things. So, when she crashes this nest down into the camp uh, of these tributes, they all go fleeing back to the lake, which means she has a bit of a chance to get out of the tree. She gets stung a couple of times. She starts to hallucinate, but she knows she has to get that bow from one of the career tributes who was actually killed by these tracker jackers. Uh, out of the group of, I believe, uh, I want to say there are... Oh, boy. I don't, know, I don't know if I can count them all properly. I want to say there are, like, three... There, well, there are five career tributes, and then PETA, if I remember correctly, and then two of them die. Um, and uh, PETA's nowhere to be seen for a bit. Uh, she does manage to get the bow, but uh, yeah, two of these career tributes die, um, and uh, Katniss gets away with the bow. And the arrows. She is in a great spot at this point, um, compared to where she was before. And now she is uh, sort of you know looking for uh looking for what to do next she kind of wakes up uh she feels absolutely terrible because she she passed out for like two days um but then she gets a little bit of uh she gets a little bit of uh medicine from the um uh from from a sponsor here she is she's on the run um and let's see Hold on, let me continue here. I actually, I, I did a bit more than I realized. A bit more of my summary than I realized. Okay, chapter 15. Uh, she wakes up from this nightmare and re-encounters Rue. They talk for a little bit, and actually, they begin to make an alliance. Um, the two of them, uh, you know, she sort of thinks like, boy, hey, Mitch is probably screaming at me right now because I picked sort of the smallest, uh, sort of least fightery, uh, sort of uh, least least martial individual here in the arena to, to ally with, but here we are. Um, and uh, let's see. I think that that is most of what it is. Uh, they have this big, uh, this, this big sort of like moment where they can share some things about themselves. Katniss has a sense that perhaps the 
the cameras are cutting away right now because they don't typically like the districts to start to understand each other. That's bad for the overall mission of the games, which is to keep everyone separated. But they've formed this alliance, and Rue points out something important. Yeah, they've got this bow, they've got these arrows, great, they can hunt for themselves, you know, maybe the tri maybe the career tributes can't, but what does it matter? They've got all the food. And Katniss says, well, that actually gives me an idea. And with that, we begin The Hunger Games, Chapter 16. Chapter 16 Rue has decided to trust me wholeheartedly. I know this because as soon as the anthem finishes, she snuggles up against me and falls asleep. Nor do I have any misgivings about her as I take no particular precautions. If she'd wanted me dead, all she would have to do is disappear from that tree without pointing out the tracker jacker nest. Needling me, the very back of my mind is the obvious. Both of us can't win these games. But since the odds are still against either of us surviving, I manage to ignore the thought. Besides, I'm distracted by my latest idea about the careers and their supplies. Somehow, Rue and I must find a way to destroy their food. I'm pretty sure feeding themselves will be a tremendous struggle. Traditionally, the career tribute strategies to get hold of all the food early on and work from there. The years when they've not protected it well... One year a pack of hideous reptiles destroyed it, another a game maker's flood washed it away. Those are usually the years that the tributes in other districts have won. That the careers have seen better feeding growing up is actually to their disadvantage, because they don't know how to be hungry. Not the way that Rue and I do. But I'm too exhausted to begin any detailed plan tonight. My wounds recovering, my mind still a bit foggy from the venom, and the warmth of Rue at my side, her head cradled on my shoulder, have given me a sense of security. I realize for the first time how very lonely I've been in the arena. How comforting the presence of another human being can be. I gave in to my drowsiness, resolving that tomorrow the tables will turn. Tomorrow, it's the careers who will have to watch their backs. The boom of the cannons jolts me awake. The sky is streaked with light, the birds already chattering. Rue perches on a branch across from me, her hands cupping something. We wait, listening for more shots, but there aren't any. Who do you think that was? I can't help thinking of Peter. I don't know. It could have been any one of the others, says Rue. I guess we'll know tonight. Who's left again? I ask. Um, the boy from District 1, both tributes from 2, the boy from 3, Thresh, and me. 
And you and Peter, says Rue. That's eight. With the boy from ten, one with the bad leg, that means nine. There's somebody else, but neither of us can remember who it is. I wonder how that last one died, says Rue. No telling. What is good for us? A death should hold the crowd for a bit. Maybe we'll have time to do something before the game makers decide things have been moving too slowly, I say. What's in your hands? Breakfast, says Rue. She holds them out, revealing two big eggs. What kind are those? I ask. Not sure. There's a marshy area over that way. Some kind of water bird, she says. It'd be nice to cook them, but neither of us wants to risk a fire. My guess is the tribute who died today was a victim of the careers, which means they've recovered enough to be back in the games. We each suck out the insides of an egg, eat a rabbit leg, and some berries. It's a good breakfast anywhere. You ready to do it? I say, pulling on my pack. Do what? Says Rue. But by the way she bounces up, you can tell she's ready for whatever. Today, we take out the career's food, I say. Really? How? You can see the glint of excitement in her eyes. In this way, she's exactly the opposite of Prim, for whom adventures are an ordeal. No idea. Come on, we'll figure out a plan while we hunt, I say. We don't get much hunting done, though, because I'm too busy getting every scrap of information I can out of Rue about the career's base. She's only been in to spy on them briefly, but she's observant. They have a setup in their camp beside the lake. Their supply stash is about 30 yards away. During the day, they've been leaving another tribute, the boy from 3, to watch over the supplies. The boy from District 3, I ask. He's working with them. Yeah. He stays at the camp full-time. He got stung, too, when they drew the tracker jackers by the lake, says Rue. I guess they agreed to let him live if he acted as their guard, but he's not very big. What weapons does he have? I ask. Not much I could see. A spear. Might be able to hold off a few of us with that, but Thresh could kill him easily, says Rue. On the food's just out in the open, I say. She nods. Something's not quite right about that whole setup. I know, but I couldn't tell what exactly, says Rue. Katniss, even if you could get to the food, how are you going to get rid of it? Oh, burn it. Dump it in the lake. Soak it in fuel. I poke Rue in the belly, just like I would with Prim. Eat it. She giggles. Don't worry. I'll think of something. Destroying things is much easier than making them. For a while, we dig up roots, and we gather berries and greens, and devise a strategy in hushed voices. And I come to know Rue, the oldest of six kids, fiercely protective of her siblings, who gives her rations to the younger ones, who forages in the meadow in a district where the peacekeepers are far less obliging than ours. Rue, who when you ask her what she loves most in the world, replies, of all things... Music. Music, I say. In our world, I rank music somewhere between hair ribbons and rainbows in terms of usefulness. At least a rainbow gives you a tip about the weather. You have a lot of time for that. We sing at home. At work, too. That's why I love your pin, she says, pointing to the mockingjay I've again forgotten about. You got mockingjays? I ask. Oh, yeah, I've got a few that are my special friends. 
We can sing back and forth for hours. They carry messages for me, she says. What do you mean? I say. I'm usually up highest, so I'm the first one to see the flag that signals it's quitting time. There's a special little song I do, says Rue. She opens her mouth and sings a little four-note run in a sweet, clear voice. And the mockingjays spread it around the orchard. That's how everyone knows to knock off, she continues. It can be dangerous, though, if you get too near their nests. But you can't blame them for that. Unclasp the pin and hold it out to her. Here, you take it. It's got more meaning for you than for me. Oh, no, says Rue, closing my fingers back over the pin. I'd like to see it on you. That's how I decided I could trust you. Besides, I've got this. She pulls a necklace woven out of some kind of grass from her shirt. On it hangs a roughly carved wooden star. Or maybe it's a flower. It's a good luck charm. Well, it's worked so far, I say, pinning the mockingjay back on my shirt. Maybe you should just stick with that. By lunch, we have a plan. By early afternoon, we're poised to carry it out. I help Rue collect and place wood for the first two campfires. The third she'll have time for on her own. We decide to meet together at the site where we ate our first meal together. The stream should help me guide back to it. Before I leave, I make sure Rue's well-stocked with food and matches. I even insist she takes my sleeping bag, in case it's not possible to rendezvous by nightfall. What about you? Won't you be cold? She asks. Not if I pick up another bag down by the lake, I say. You know, stealing's not illegal in here, I say with a grin. At the last minute, Rue decides to teach me her Mockingjay signal, the one that she uses to indicate that today's work is done. It might not work, but if you hear the Mockingjays singing it, you'll know I'm okay, even if I can't get back right away. Are there many Mockingjays here? I ask. Haven't you seen them? They've got nests everywhere, she says. I have to admit, I haven't noticed. All right, then. If all goes according to plan... I'll see you for dinner, I say. Unexpectedly, Rue throws her arms around me. I only hesitate a moment before I hug her back. You be careful, she says to me. You too, I say. I turn and head back to the stream, feeling somehow worried. About Rue being killed, about Rue not being killed, and the two of us being left for last, about leaving Rue alone about leaving Prim alone back at home. No, Prim has my mother and Gail and a baker who's promised she won't go hungry. Rue has only me. Once I reach the stream, I have only to follow it downhill to the place I initially picked it up after the tracker-jacker attack. I have to be cautious as I move along the water, though, because I find my thoughts preoccupied with unanswered questions, most of which concern PETA. The cannon that fired early this morning, did that signify his death? If so, how did he die? At the hand of a career? And was that in revenge for letting me live? I struggle again to remember that moment over Glimmer's body when he burst through the trees. But just the fact that he was sparkling leads me to doubt everything that happened. I must have been moving very slowly yesterday because I reached the shallow stretch where I took my bath in just a few hours. I stop to replenish my water and add a layer of mud to my backpack. 
it seems bent on reverting to orange no matter how many times I cover it. My proximity to the career's camp sharpens my senses, and the closer I am to them, the more guarded I am, pausing frequently to listen for unnatural sounds, an arrow already fitted to the string of my bow. I don't see any other tributes, but I do notice some of the things Rue has mentioned. Patches of the sweet berries, a bush with the leaves that healed my stings, clusters of tracker-jacker nests in the vicinity of the tree I was trapped in, and here and there, the black and white flash of a mockingjay wing in the branches high over my head. When I reach the tree with the abandoned nest at the foot, I pause a moment to gather my courage. Rue has given me specific instructions on how to reach the best spying place near the lake from this point. Remember, I tell myself, you are the hunter now, not them. I get a firmer grasp on my bow and go on. I make it to the cops that Rue has told me about, and again, I have to admire her cleverness. It's right down at the edge of the wood, but the bushy foliage is so thick down low I can easily observe the career camp without being spotted. Between us lies the flat expanse where the games began. There are four tributes. The boy from District 1, Cato, and the girl from District 2, and a scrawny, ashen-skinned boy who must be from District 3. He made almost no impression on me at all during our time in the capital. I can remember almost nothing about him. Not his costume, not his training score, not his interview. Even now, he sits there fiddling with some kind of plastic box. He's easily ignored in the presence of his large and domineering companions. But he must be of some value, or they wouldn't have bothered to let him live. Still, seeing him only adds to my sense of unease over why the careers would possibly leave him as a guard, why they've allowed him to live at all. All four tributes seem to still be recovering from the tracker-jacker attack. Even from here, I can see the large swollen lumps on their bodies. They must not have had the sense to remove their stingers, or if they did, not known about the leaves that healed them. Apparently, whatever medicines they found in the cornucopia had been ineffective. The cornucopia sits in its original position, but its insides have been picked clean. Most of the supplies, held in crates, burlap sacks, and plastic bins, are piled neatly in a pyramid, in what seems a questionable distance from the camp. Others are sprinkled around the perimeter of the pyramid, almost mimicking the layout of the supplies around the cornucopia at the outset of the games. A canopy of netting that, aside from discouraging birds, seems to be useless, shelters the pyramid itself. The whole setup is completely perplexing. The distance, the netting, the presence of the boy from District 3. One thing is for sure. Destroying those supplies is not going to be as simple as it looks. Some other factor is at play here, and I'd better stay put until I figure out what it is. My guess is that the pyramid is booby-trapped in some manner. I think of concealed pits, descending nets, a thread that when broken sends a poisonous dart into your heart. Really, the possibilities are endless. While I'm mulling over my options, I hear Cato shout out. He's pointing to the woods, far beyond me, and without turning, I know that Rue must have sent the first campfire. We'd made sure to gather enough green wood to make the smoke noticeable. The careers begin to arm themselves at once. An argument breaks out. It's loud enough for me to hear it concerns whether or not the boy from District 3 should stay or accompany them. He's coming. We need him in the woods, and his job's done here anyway. No one can touch those supplies, says Cato. And what about Loverboy? 
says the boy from District 1. I keep telling you, forget about him. I know where I cut him. It's a miracle he hasn't bled to death yet. At any rate, he's in no shape to raid us, says Cato. So, Peter is out there in the woods, badly wounded. But I'm still in the dark about what motivated him to betray the careers. Come on, says Cato. He thrusts his spear into the hands of the boy from District 3, and they head off in the direction of the fire. The last thing I hear as they enter the woods is Cato saying, When we find her, I kill her in my own way, and no one interferes. Somehow I don't think he was talking about Rue. She didn't drop a nest of tracker jackers on him. I stay put for half an hour or so, trying to figure out what to do about the supplies. The one advantage I have with the bow and arrow is distance. I could send a flaming arrow into the pyramid easily enough. I'm a good enough shot to get it through those openings in the net, but there's no guarantee it would catch. More likely it would just burn itself out, and then what? I'd have achieved nothing and given them far too much information about myself. That I was here, that I had an accomplice, that I could use the bow and arrow with accuracy. There's no alternative. I'm going to have to get in closer and see if I can't discover what exactly protects the supplies. In fact, I'm just about to reveal myself when a movement catches my eye. Several hundred yards to my right, I see someone emerge from the woods. For a second, I think it's Rue. But then I recognize Foxface. She's the one we couldn't remember this morning, creeping out into the plain. When she decides it's safe... She runs for the pyramid with quick, small steps. Just before she reaches the circle of supplies that have been littered around the pyramid, she stops, searches the ground, and carefully places her feet on a spot. Then she begins to approach the pyramid in strange little hops, sometimes landing on one foot, teetering slightly, sometimes risking a few steps. At one point, she launches up into the air, over a small barrel, and lands poised on her tiptoes, but she overshots slightly and her momentum throws her forward. I hear her give a sharp squeal as her hands hit the ground. But nothing happens. In a moment, she's regained her feet and continues until she's searched the bulk of the supplies. So, I'm right about the booby trap, but it's clearly more complex than I imagined. I was right about the girl, too. How wily is she to have discovered this path into the food, and to be able to replicate it so neatly? She fills her pack, taking a few items from a variety of containers, crackers from a crate, a handful of apples from a burlap sack that hangs suspended off a rope off the side of a bin, but only a handful from each, not enough to tip off that the food is missing, not enough to cause suspicion. And then she's doing her odd little dance back out of the circle and scampering into the woods again. Safe and sound. I realize I'm grinding my teeth in frustration. Foxface has confirmed what I'd already guessed. But what sort of trap have they laid that requires such dexterity? Has so many trigger points? Why did she squeal so as her hands made contact with the earth? You'd have thought... And slowly it begins to dawn on me. You'd have thought the very ground was going to explode. It's mind, I whisper. That explains everything. The career's willingness to leave their supplies, Foxface's reaction, the involvement of the boy from District 3, where they have the factories, where they make televisions and automobiles and explosives. 
But where did he get them? In the supplies? That's not the sort of weapon game makers usually provide, given that they'd like to see the tributes draw blood personally. I slip out of the bushes and cross to one of the round metal plates that lifted the tributes into the arena. The ground around it has been dug up and patted back down. The landmines were disabled after the 60 seconds that we stood on the plates, but the boy from District 3 must have managed to reactivate them. Never seen anyone in the games do that. I bet it came as a shock even to the game makers. Well, hooray for the boy from District 3 for putting one over on them, but what am I supposed to do now? Obviously, I can't go strolling into that mess without blowing myself sky-high. As for sending in a burning arrow, that's even more laughable than ever. The mines are set off by pressure. It doesn't have to be a lot, either. One year, a girl dropped her token, a small wooden ball, while she was on her plate, and they literally had to scrape bits of her off the ground. My arm is pretty good. I might be able to chuck some rocks in there and set off... What, maybe one mine? That could start a reaction. Or could it? Would the boy from District 3 have placed the mines in such a way that a single mine would not disturb the others, thereby protecting the supplies but ensuring the death of the invader? Even if I only blew one mine up, I would draw the careers back on me for sure. And anyway, what am I thinking? There's the net clearly strong to deflect any such attack. Besides... What I'd really need is to throw about 30 rocks in there at once, setting off a big chain reaction, demolishing the whole lot. I glance back up at the woods. The smoke from Rue's second fire is wafting toward the sky. By now, the careers have probably begun to suspect some sort of trick. Time is running out. There's a solution to this. I know that there is. If I can only focus hard enough. I stare at the pyramid. The bins, the crates, too heavy to topple over with an arrow. Maybe one contains cooking oil and the burning arrow idea is reviving when I realize I could end up losing all twelve of my arrows if I don't get a direct hit on an oil bin, since I'd just be guessing. I'm genuinely thinking of trying to recreate Foxface's trip up to the pyramid in hopes of finding a new means of destruction when my eyes light upon the burlap bag of apples. I could sever the rope in one shot. Didn't I do as much in the training center? It's a big bag, but it still might only be good enough for one explosion. If only I could free the apples themselves. I know what to do. I move into range and give myself three arrows to get the job done. I place my feet carefully, block out the rest of the world as I take meticulous aim. The first arrow tears through the side of the bag near the top leaving a split in the burlap. The second widens it to a gaping hole. I can see the first apple teetering when I let the third arrow go, catching the torn flap of the burlap and ripping it from the bag. For a moment, everything seems frozen in time. Then the apples spill to the ground, and I'm blown backwards into the air. There you have it, folks. The plan comes together. It seems that those mines 
are going to come in handy anyway. Even though the, the game makers intend to have them be non-functional after the very beginning of the game, turns out somebody found use for them. Uh, the boy from District 3, I believe it was, and seems that he is a bit of a technician. He rigs this big old pile of food and supplies to blow up when somebody approaches it. But he's not the only one who's able to find a, a bit of use for it. As Katniss uses a bag of apples, ripping it open a little by little with arrows. And uh, these apples tumble down below and... There we have it, folks. Now... Everyone, uh, as has become the custom during this, I'm going to take my break after the next chapter. But uh, let's check in with chat for a bit. Sparkle Lovegood says, is there anyone here who has never seen the movies or read the books? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. I like that question. Anybody here who is totally new to the Hunger Games? I know we've got a couple. Um, and then I know we've got some people who have never read any of the other stories that they've joined us for. But this is the first one that they have read previously. Um, I want to say that uh, Van Saves Lives is in that camp. If I remember correctly. Uh, Orly Rose says, I have not. Orly Rose, ooh. Hook says, uh, I have seen the movies but not read the books. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, here in the sidecar says, I was finally able to make it to a stream. I've been listening on YouTube and then Spotify. I'm glad to finally have a chance to tell you I absolutely love your voice acting. Here in the sidecar, thank you very, very much. Based on your... Twitch handle, I can guess that you probably came over here especially for this, which I'm very, very thankful for. Thank you so very much. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, and uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm glad you came to, to say hi. That's very sweet of you. Thank you uh, here in the sidecar. Um, great to have you here. I hope you're enjoying it thus far. Um, yeah, folks, for anyone who is joining us late, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and today is Thursday, which means Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. Uh, right now, we have just finished up Chapter 16 of The Hunger Games Book 1, and we're going to be rolling through Chapters 17 and 18 today, in just a moment. I'm going to get into the uh, I'm going to get into uh, the review in just a moment, but I wanted to sort of give you all a bit of a heads up because we're doing something a l really really cool on Wednesdays. Um, Wednesdays uh, we have got our new campaign getting started, uh, and for any of you who maybe checked in on the last campaign, it was kind of too complex to sort of wrap your mind around it. Um, we are doing it much more simply this time. As a matter of fact, we're doing it much more traditionally. Basically. Come hang out on Wednesdays, um, or if you've got ideas and you can't make it on Wednesdays, but you still want to sort of get your get your word in there, go ahead and uh, say hello over in the Realms of Recedis channel on Discord. Um, but basically, the system is just going to be, you just tell me in chat what you want the character to do, um, and I will narrate the rest. Much more traditional style, we're not going to worry about bots and stuff for this season. Um, and right now, we are playing a, a game called Iron Sworn, but that's not going to be the thing that's important to most of y'all. What most of you are going to want to know is that Chat is going to be playing a character named Igor, uh, who is going to be a ghost. Uh, Igor is going to be a little ghost lad, and uh, I am going to be playing a character named Illyria. Um, and they are a um, uh, they are they are a human, but uh, by the time we catch up with them at the Vesperal Academy at Castle Vesperal. Uh, I will have become a lichen. Illyria will have become a lichen, uh, which, uh, that's L-Y-C-A-N. Um, and for those of you who don't know, that is going to be a werewolf, a werebear, a werebore. Uh, we're not really sure yet. I'm, I'm 
trying to decide if I'm going to determine it right now or if I'm just going to roll a dice to find out later on. But uh, for any of you who are not familiar with sort of collaborative storytelling of this kind, um, this would be a great way to sort of get in there. Um, this one, unlike many of the, uh, unlike sort of the last one, it doesn't require quite as much sort of uh, foreknowledge or understanding of the setting. We spent a year playing the uh, Reseda's Arena campaign, and we spent last year, more than a year, um, just doing world building. And now, now we're in campaign two, and campaign two is going to center on Castle Vesperal and the Vesperal Academy um, for young Duskin. So young vampires, young ghosts, young lichen. Uh, and I, I think y'all are going to really enjoy it. Uh, you can imagine it as being essentially haunted Hogwarts. Um, spooky, spooky Hogwarts with, uh, you know, some sort of slice of life elements. Definitely a, um, uh, definitely some adventure as well, but... I want to discover more and more. I want to adventure inward. I want to explore inward, discover deeper and deeper levels of the castle and uh, and the grounds and all that. Um, so I hope you will enjoy. Uh, it is a a secret school for some of the uh, some of the spookiest kids around. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope you will join us on Wednesdays. Uh, and if not, I hope you will catch the episode episodes. Um, I plan to make those available on YouTube and on. Uh, Spotify, um, so that you can listen to them uh, either with the visuals, because I do plan to have sort of splash art. I'm even building some things that I hope I will eventually be able to put before you. Um, but uh, yeah, if you just want the audio-only version, those will be on Spotify. So get looking forward to that, because episode one is next week. Next week is episode one on Wednesday, noon Pacific time. Come hang out. Okay, there's that. Now, uh, with that announcement aside, I thank you very much for your patience. Let's talk a bit of review for uh, what we saw in this episode of uh, what we saw in this previous chapter here so we can move on to our next one. Um, chapter 16, the plan. The plan to make the career tributes just as hungry as everybody else. Um, Katniss decides that, uh, you know, it's really time that the other tributes should feel, um, you know, they, they shouldn't feel quite so secure. It's about time that they had a little bit of fear in their hearts. Um, and so she decides they're going to they're going to distract them by having uh, Rue light these fires out in the forest. And then while they're gone, Katniss is going to raid their supplies and hopefully destroy as much of it as possible. She gets there, doesn't know quite what to do because it's a very strange setup. All of the supplies are in this big pyramid with a net over them, just sort of off by themselves. They don't even end up leaving anyone to guard these supplies. Here's the deal. There's a boy from one of the uh, sort of factory districts who has apparently been able to re-engage the landmines uh, from the very beginning of the games, and they've placed them strategically around this pyramid of supplies, so no one can really get near, except Foxface, uh, this, this sort of lone tribute Nobody is really keeping track of her. She manages to sneak up, finds a quick route through to get to the supplies, and then takes off again. This is what sort of clues Katniss in, and she manages to come up with a plan that she's going to shoot arrows at this sack of apples until the apples spill out and detonate all the mines. And she does that thing. She does that sucker. And that is where we're going to begin with our next chapter for today. Uh, Sparkle Lovegood says, I usually save this kind of sap for Tuesdays, but I cannot say how much of a difference Sidecar has made in my life. Sometimes it's the only thing I'll do in a week. 
It isn't just enjoyable, but every stream I forget you're not sitting in a room with a bunch of other characters. It's all you. Hey, Sparkle Lovegood, I am very, very thankful to have you here. Thank you so much for coming to hang out, uh, as I really appreciate all of you. Y'all, thank you so much for being here. And with that, let us begin. Chapter 17 The impact with the hard-packed earth of the plane knocks the wind out of me. My backpack does little to soften the blow. Fortunately, my quiver has caught in the crook of my shoulder, sparing both itself and my shoulder, and my bow is locked in my grasp. The ground still shakes with explosions. I can't hear them. I can't hear anything at the moment, but the apples must have set off enough mines, causing debris to activate the others. I manage to shield my face with my arms as shattered bits of matter, some of it burning, rain down around me. An acrid smoke fills the air, which is not the best remedy for someone trying to regain the ability to breathe. After about a minute, the ground stops vibrating. I roll on my side and allow myself a moment of satisfaction at the sight of the smoldering wreckage that was recently the pyramid. The careers aren't likely to salvage anything out of that. I'd better get out of here, I think. They'll be making a beeline for the place. But once I'm on my feet, I realize escape might not be so simple. I'm dizzy. Not the slightly wobbly kind, but the kind that sends trees swooping around you and causes the earth to move in waves under your feet. I take a few steps and somehow wind up on my hands and knees. I wait a few minutes to let it pass, but it doesn't. Panic sets in. I can't stay here. Flight is essential. But I can neither walk nor hear. I place a hand to my left ear, the one that was turned toward the blast, and it comes away bloody. Have I gone deaf from the explosion? The idea frightens me. I rely as much on my ears as my eyes as a hunter, maybe more at times. But I can't let my fear show. Absolutely, positively, I am live on every screen in Pan Am. No blood trails, I tell myself, and manage to pull my hood up over my head, tie the cord under my chin with uncooperative fingers... That should help soak up the blood. I can't walk, but can I crawl? I move forward tentatively. Yes, if I go very slowly, I can crawl. Most of the woods will offer insufficient cover. My only hope is to make it back to Rue's cops and conceal myself in the greenery. I can't get caught out here on my hands and knees in the open. Not only will I face death, but it's sure to be a long and painful one at Cato's hand. The thought of Prim having to watch that keeps me doggedly inching my way forward to the hideout. Another blast knocks me flat on my face. A stray mine set off by some collapsing crate. This happens twice more. I'm reminded of those last few kernels that burst when Prim and I pop corn over the fire at home. To say I make it in the nick of time is an understatement. I've literally just dragged myself into the tangle of bushes at the base of the trees where there's Cato barreling into the plane, soon followed by his companions. His rage is so extreme it might be comical. 
so people really do tear out their hair and beat the ground with their fists, if I didn't know that it was aimed at me, at what I've done to him. Add that to my proximity, my inability to run or defend myself, and in fact, the whole thing has me terrified. I'm glad my hiding place makes it impossible for the cameras to get a close shot of me, because I'm biting my nails like there's no tomorrow, gnawing off the last bits of nail polish, trying to keep my teeth from chattering. The boy from District 3 throws stones into the ruins and must have declared all the mines activated because the careers are approaching the wreckage. Cato has finished his first phase of the tantrum and takes out his anger on the smoking remains by kicking open various containers. The other tributes are poking around in the mess, looking for anything to salvage, but there's nothing. The boy from District 3 has done his job too well. This idea must occur to Cato, too, because he turns on the boy and appears to be shouting at him. The boy from District 3 only has time to turn and run before Cato catches him in a headlock from behind. I can see the muscles ripple in Cato's arms as he sharply jerks the boy's head to the side. It's that quick. The death of the boy from District 3. The other two careers seem to be trying to calm Cato down. I can tell he wants to return to the woods, but they keep pointing at the sky. Which puzzles me until I realize, of course. They think whoever set off the explosions is dead. They don't know about the arrows and the apples. They assume that the booby trap was faulty, but that the tribute who blew up the supplies was killed doing it. If there was a cannon shot, it could have easily been lost in the subsequent explosions, the shattered remains of the thief removed by hovercraft. They retire to the far edge of the lake to allow the game makers to retrieve the body of the boy from District 3. And they wait. I suppose a cannon goes off. A hovercraft appears and takes the dead boy. The sun dips below the horizon. Night falls. Up in the sky I see the seal and know that the anthem must have begun. A moment of darkness. They show the boy from District 3. They show the boy from District 10 who must have died this morning. Then the seal reappears. So now they know. The bomber survived. In the seal's light, I can see Cato and the girl from District 2 put on their night vision glasses. The boy from District 1 ignites a tree branch for a torch, illuminating the grim determination on all their faces. The careers stride back into the woods to hunt. The dizziness has subsided, and while my left ear is still deafened, I can hear a ringing in my right, which seems a good sign. There's no point in leaving my hiding place, though. I'm about as safe as I can be here at the crime scene. They probably think the bomber has a two or three hour head start on them. Still, it's a long time before I risk moving. The first thing I do is dig out my own glasses and put them on, which relaxes me a little, to at least have one of my hunter's senses working. I drink some water and wash the blood from my ear. Fearing that the smell of meat will draw unwanted predators, Flesh blood is bad enough. I make a good meal out of the greens and roots and berries that Rue and I gathered today. Where is my little ally? Did she make it back to the rendezvous point? Is she worried about me? At least the sky was shown that we're both alive. I run through the remaining tributes on my fingers. The boy from one, both from two, Foxface, both from eleven and twelve. Just eight of us. 
The betting must be getting really hot in the capital. They'll be doing some special features on each one of us now. Probably interviewing our friends and families. It's been a long time since a tribute from District 12 made it into the top eight. And now there are two of us. Although from what Cato said, Peter is on his way out. Not that Cato is the final word on anything. Didn't he just lose his entire stash of supplies? Let the 74th Hunger Games begin, Cato, I think. Let them begin for real. A cold breeze has strung up. I reach for my sleeping bag before I remember I left it with Rue. I was supposed to bring up another one, but with the mines and all, I forgot. I begin to shiver. Since roosting overnight in a tree isn't sensible anyway, I scoop out a hollow underneath the bushes and cover myself with leaves and pine needles. I'm still freezing. I lay my sheet of plastic over my upper body and position my backpack to block the wind. It's a little better. I begin to have more sympathy for the girl from District 8, the one that lit the fire that first night. But now it's me who needs to grit my teeth and tough it out until morning. More leaves, more pine needles. I pull my arms inside my jacket and tuck my knees up into my chest. Somehow, I drift off to sleep. When I open my eyes, the world looks slightly fractured, and it takes a minute to realize that the sun must be well up and the glasses fragmenting my vision. As I sit up and remove them, I hear a laugh somewhere near the lake and freeze. The laugh is distorted, but the fact that it registered at all means I must be regaining my hearing. Yes, my right ear can hear again, although it's still ringing. As for my left ear, well, at least the bleeding has stopped. I peer through the bushes, afraid the careers have returned, trapping me here for an indefinite time. No, it's Foxface, standing in the rubble of the pyramid and laughing. She's smarter than the careers, actually finding a few useful items in the ashes. A metal pot, a knife blade... I'm perplexed by her amusement until I realize that with the career's stores eliminated, she might actually stand a chance. Just like the rest of us. It crosses my mind to reveal myself and enlist her as a second ally against the pack, but I rule it out. There's something about that sly grin that makes me sure that befriending Foxface would ultimately get me a knife in the back. With that in mind, this might be an excellent time to shoot her. But she's heard something. Not me, because her head turns away toward the drop-off and she sprints for the woods. I wait. No one. Nothing shows up. Still, if Foxface thought it was dangerous, maybe it's time for me to get out of here, too. Besides, I'm eager to tell Rue about the pyramid. Since I've no idea where the careers are, the route back to the stream seems as good as any. I hurry, loaded bow in one hand, a chunk of cold grusling in the other, because I'm famished now. And not just for leaves and berries, but for the fat and protein in the meat. The trip to the stream is uneventful. Once there, I refill my water and wash, taking particular care with my injured ear. Then I travel uphill, using the stream as a guide. At one point, I find boot prints in the mud along the bank. The careers must have been here, but not for a while. The prints are deep, because they were made in soft mud, but now they're nearly dry in the hot sun. I haven't been careful enough about my own tracks, counting in a light tread and the pine needles to conceal my prints. Now I strip off my boots and socks and go barefoot up to the bed of the stream. 
The cool water has an invigorating effect on my body and my spirits. I shoot two fish, easy pickings in this slow-moving stream, and go ahead and eat one raw, even though I've just had the grusling. A second, I'll save for Rue. Gradually, subtly, the ringing in my right ear diminishes until it's gone entirely. I find myself pawing at my left ear periodically, trying to clean away whatever deadens its ability to collect sounds. If there's improvement, it's undetectable. I can't adjust to the deafness in that ear. It makes me feel off-balanced and defenseless to my left, blind even. My head keeps turning to the injured side as my right ear tries to compensate for the wall of nothingness, where yesterday there was a constant flow of information. The more time that passes, the less hopeful I am that this injury will heal. When I reach the site of our first meeting, I feel certain it's been undisturbed. There's no sign of rue, not in the ground or in the trees. This is odd. By now she should have returned, as it's midday. Undoubtedly, she spent her night in a tree somewhere. What else could she do with no light and the careers with their night vision glasses tramping around the woods? And the third fire she was supposed to set, although I forgot to check for it last night, was the furthest away from our site. She's probably just being cautious about making her way back. I wish she would hurry, because I don't want to have to hang around here too long. I want to spend the afternoon traveling to higher ground, hunting as we go. But there's nothing really for me to do but wait. I wash the blood out of my jacket and hair and clean my ever-growing list of wounds. The burns are much better, but I use a bit of the medicine on them anyway. The main thing to worry about now is keeping out infection. I go ahead and eat the second fish. It isn't going to last long in this hot sun, but it should be easy enough to spear a few more for Rue. If she would just show up. Feeling too vulnerable on the ground, if my lopsided hearing, I scale a tree to wait. If the careers show up, this will be a fine place to shoot them from. The sun moves slowly. I do things to pass the time. Chew leaves and apply them to my stings that are deflated, but still tender. Comb through my damp hair with my fingers and braid it. Lace my boots back up. Check over my bow and remaining nine arrows. Test my left ear repeatedly for signs of life by rustling a leaf near it, but without good results. Despite the grusling and the fish, my stomach's growling, and I know I'm going to have to do what we call a hollow day in District 12. That's a day where, no matter what you put in your belly, it's never enough. Having nothing to do but sit in a tree makes it worse, so I decide to give in to it. After all, I've lost a lot of weight in the arena. I need some extra calories. And having the bow and arrows makes me far more confident about my future prospects. I slowly peel and eat a handful of nuts. My last cracker. The grusling neck. That's good because it takes time to pick it clean. Finally... A grusling wing, and the bird is history. But it's a hollow day, and even with all that, I start daydreaming about food. Particularly the decadent dishes served in the capital. The chicken in creamy orange sauce. The cakes and pudding. Bread with butter. Noodles in green sauce. The lamb and dried plum stew. I suck on a few mint leaves and tell myself to get over it. The mint is good because we drink mint tea after supper often, so it tricks my stomach into thinking that eating time is over. Sort of. Dangling up in the tree, 
with the sun warming me, a mouthful of mint and my bow and arrows at hand, this is the most relaxed I've been since I've entered the arena. If only Rue would show up, we could clear out. As the shadows grow, so does my restlessness. By late afternoon, I've resolved to go looking for her. I can at least visit the spot where she set the third fire, see if there are any clues to her whereabouts. Before I go, I scatter a few mint leaves around our old campfire. Since we gathered these some distance away, Rue will understand I've been here, while they mean nothing to the careers. In less than half an hour, I'm at the place where we agreed to have the third fire, and I know something has gone amiss. The wood has been neatly arranged, expertly interspersed with tinder, but it's never been lit. Rue set up the fire, but never made it back here. Somewhere between the second column of smoke I spied before I blew up the supplies in this point, she ran into trouble. I have to remind myself she's still alive. Or is she? Could the cannon shot announcing her death have come in the wee hours of the morning when even my good ear was too broken to pick it up? Will she appear in the sky tonight? No, I refuse to believe it. There must be a hundred other explanations. She could have lost her way, run into a pack of predators or another tribute like Thresh and had to hide. Whatever happened, I'm almost certain she's stuck it out there, somewhere between the second fire and the unlit one at my feet. Something is keeping her up a tree. I think I'll go hunt it down. It's a relief doing something after sitting around all afternoon. I creep silently through the shadows, letting them conceal me. But nothing seems suspicious. There's no sign of any kind of struggle. No disruption of the needles on the ground. I stopped for just a moment when I hear it. I have to cock my head around to one side to be sure, but there it is. Rue's four-note tone coming out of a mockingjay's mouth. The one that means she's all right. I grin and move in the direction of the bird. Another, just a short distance ahead, picks up on the handful of notes. Rue has been singing to them, and recently. Otherwise, they'd have taken up some other song. My eyes lift up to the trees, searching for a sign of her. I swallow and sing softly back, hoping she'll know it's safe to join me. A mocking jay repeats the melody to me. That's when I hear the scream. It's a child's scream. A young girl's scream. There's no one in the arena capable of making that sound except Rue. And now I'm running, knowing this may be a trap, knowing the three careers may be poised to attack me, but I can't help myself. There's another high-pitched cry. This time, my name. Katniss! Katniss! Rue! I shout back, so she knows I'm near. So they know I'm near. And hopefully the girl who has attacked them with tracker jackers and gotten an eleven they still can't explain will be enough to pull their attention away. Rue, I'm coming! When I break through the clearing, she's on the ground, hopelessly entangled in a net. She has just enough time to reach her hand through the mesh and say my name before the spear enters her body.
Oh boy. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. All right. Folks, a chatter break question, and then I'm going to take five minutes. I'll be back after that. Um, I will see you in a moment for our last chapter of the evening, chapter 18, and the last chapter of part two. This whole book is divided up into three parts. Each part has nine chapters, and of course, this is the last, the last chapter of part two. Next week, we move into part three, but big things happening at the end of part two. Everyone, um, my chatterbreak question for all of you is going to be about the characters. Based on who we know, based on what we know about these characters, who is patient, who is wrathful, who is skillful, uh, who is attentive, who's perceptive, who's strong? How do we think the rest of these games play out? There's our chatterbreak question, and I will see you all in five minutes. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It is great to have you all here. I hope you are doing well, uh, in spite of, well, in spite of everything, in spite of the text of the book, in spite of, in spite of so many things, I hope you're doing quite well. Um, let's see. Now, I have asked the Chatterbreak question, how do we think the rest of these games play out? Because, you know, I've asked based on what we know about the characters. Um, because I think that's important to track. You know, who do we think is strong? Who do we think is intelligent? Who do we think is tough? Who do we think is perceptive? Let's take a look. Orly Rose says, I think the happiness and safety that Katniss brought to Rue caused her to be a bit more daring and perhaps drop her guard. Orly Rose says, uh, I think Thresh has the most brute strength, but Katniss has much more inner strength. She's got, she's so much more self-sufficient. She's also very observant and quick on her feet. Jem uh, says, I needed to know why they shot Rue and not Katniss. If Katniss was there and the bigger threat, why kill a child? And I think the, um, I guess the, hmm, the scene geography may, may sort of help here. Um, uh, especially here in the book, as opposed to the you know the movie, um, Cy Vengeful says I think Cato's extremely strong and smart, but I think his fatal flaw is that he's hot-headed. He just does things out of anger or spite without really thinking things out. I think you're right. It seems to be that way so far. You know, I, to me, it seems like a, a a bad idea to go and kill that kid from uh, District Three because he might still be very useful. Um, and he's not that much of a threat to the career, so why, you know, why, why kill him off then? He's a hothead, for sure. For sure. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Soft says, I've got a younger sibling myself, so I can really relate to Katniss. Yeah, this would be a tough one. Uh, Big Mama says, um, Foxface is extremely observant. Twitchy, but that's working in her favor. Yeah, Foxface does seem to be uh, observant and sort of clever, smart enough to keep herself out of most trouble. But if trouble comes and finds her, how long does that last? That'll be part of the question. So uh, let us find out, shall we? Everyone, uh, a bit of review. Uh, chapters 16 and 17 today uh, so far. And we're about to launch into chapter 18. Uh, chapter 16, 
Katniss and Rue put together and execute their plan to destroy the storage uh, of supplies and food that the, the career tributes have sort of been guarding near the cornucopia. They've got this pyramid of food, and Katniss ends up blowing it up using the very same uh, landmines that the careers had used to sort of booby trap this pile of supplies. Um, so she destroys it, but she kind of injures herself and, and bl uh, deafens herself in one ear um, uh, and manages to get away. Foxface, which is her sort of like uh, her nickname for one of these other tributes, has been sort of stealing in and out from this. Um, doesn't appear to be a huge threat to her immediately, but certainly she's clever. Um, the career tributes are absolutely furious, um, uh, and Katniss manages to get away, but something's wrong. She spends most of Chapter 17 looking for uh, for Rue. They're supposed to meet back up so that they can get to some high ground, hunt along the way, uh, sort of get away and let the career tributes kind of starve themselves out. But that's not how it happens. She does some hunting through the woods, goes to the different sites where she was kind of supposed to meet uh, with Rue, doesn't find her anywhere, um, and unfortunately catches up with Rue after hearing a, a scream in the woods, catches up with Rue just as Rue takes an arrow, uh, takes a, a spear to the side. And that, I regret to inform you, is where we're at. We shall have to see if Katniss really was too late. Chapter 18. The boy from District 1 dies before he can pull the spear out again. My arrow drives deeply into the center of his neck. He falls to his knees and halves the brief remainder of his life by yanking out the arrow and drowning in his own blood. I'm reloaded, shifting my aim from one side to the other while I shout at Rue, Are there more? Are there any more? She has to say no several times before I can hear it. Rue has rolled onto her side, her body curved in and around the spear. I shove the boy away from her and pull out my knife, freeing her from the net. One look at the wound, and I know it's far beyond my capacity to heal. Beyond anyone's, probably. The spearhead is buried up to the shaft in her stomach. I crouch before her, staring helplessly at the embedded weapon. There's no point in comforting words, telling her she'll be all right. She's no fool. Her hand reaches out and I clutch it like a lifeline, as if it's me who's dying instead of Rue. You blew up the food, she whispers. Every last bit, I say. You have to win, she says. I'm going to. I'm going to win for both of us now. I promise. I hear a cannon and look up. It must be for the boy from District 1. 
Rue tightens her grip on my hand. Of course not. I'm staying right here, I say. I move in closer to her, pulling her head into my lap. I gently brush the dark, thick hair back behind her ear. Sing, she says, but I barely catch the word. Sing, I think. Sing what? I do know a few songs. Believe it or not, there was once music in my house, too. Music I, I helped make. My father pulled me in with that remarkable voice. But I haven't sung much since he died. Except when Prim is very sick. Then I sing her the same songs she liked as a baby. Sing. My throat is tight with tears, hoarse from smoke and fatigue. But if this is Prim's, I, I mean, Rue's last request, I have to at least try. The song that comes to me is a simple lullaby, one we sing to fretful, hungry babies to sleep. It's old, very old, I think, made up long ago in our hills. It's what my music teacher calls a mountain air. But the words are easy and soothing, promising tomorrow will be more hopeful than this awful piece of time we call today. I give a small cough, swallow hard, and begin. Deep in the meadow, under the willow, bed of grass, a soft green pillow Lay down your head And close your sleepy eyes When again they open up Sun will rise Here it's safe Here it's warm Here the daisy guard you from all harm Here your dreams are sweet Tomorrow brings them true. Here is the place where I love you. Rue's eyes have fluttered shut. Her chest moves, but only slightly. My throat releases the tears and they slide down my cheeks. But I have to finish the song for her. Deep in the meadow, hidden far away, a cloak of leaves, a moonbeam ray. Forget your woes and let your troubles lay. When again it's morning, they'll all wash away. Here it's safe and here it's warm. Here the daisies guard you from all harm. The final lines are barely audible. Here your dreams are sweet, and tomorrow brings them true. Here is the place where I love you. Everything is still and quiet. 
and then almost eerily the mocking jays take up my song. For a moment, I sit there, watching my tears drip down on her face. Ruse cannon fires. I lean forward and press my lips against her temple. Slowly, as if not to wake her, I lay her head back on the ground and release her hand. They'll want me to clear out now, so they can collect the bodies. And there's nothing to stay for. I roll the boy from District 1 onto his face and take his pack, retrieve the arrow that ended his life. I cut Rue's pack from her back as well, knowing she'd want me to have it, but I leave the spear in her stomach. Weapons and bodies will be transported to the hovercraft. I've got no use for a spear so the sooner it's gone from the arena, the better. I can't stop looking at Rue, smaller than ever, a baby animal curled up in a nest of netting. I can't bring myself to leave her like this, past harm, but seeming utterly defenseless. To hate the boy from District 1, who also appears so vulnerable in death, seems inadequate. It's the capital I hate for doing this to all of us. Gale's voice is in my head. His ravings against the capital no longer pointless, no longer to be ignored. Rue's death has forced me to confront my own fury against the cruelty, the injustice they inflict on us. But here, even more strongly than at home, I feel my impotence. There's no way to take revenge on the capital. Is there? And I remember Peter's words on the roof. Only I wish... I wish I could think of a way to, to show the capital that they don't own me. That I'm more than just a piece in their games. And for the first time I understand what he means. I want to do something, right here, right now, to shame them. To make them accountable. To show the capital that whatever they do or force us to do, there's a part of every tribute they can't own. That Rue was more than a piece in their games. And so am I. A few steps into the woods grows a bank of wildflowers. Perhaps they're really weeds of some sort, but they've got blossoms in beautiful shades of violet and yellow and white. I gather up an armful and come back to Rue's side. Slowly, one stem at a time, I decorate her body in the flowers, covering the ugly wound, wreathing her face, weaving her hair with bright colors. They'll have to show it. 
Or even if they choose to turn the cameras elsewhere at this moment, they'll have to bring them back when they collect the bodies. And everyone will see her and know I did it. I step back and take a last look at Rue. She could really be asleep in that meadow after all. Goodbye, Rue. I whisper. I press the three middle fingers of my left hand. I press the three. I press the three middle fingers of my left hand against my lips and hold them out in her direction. And I walk away without looking back. The birds fall silent. Somewhere a mockingjay gives the warning whistle that precedes the hovercraft. I don't know how it knows. It must hear things that humans can't. I pause, my eyes focused on what's ahead, not what's happening behind me. It doesn't take long, then the general bird song begins again, and I know she's gone. Another mockingjay, a young one by the look of it, lands on a branch before me and bursts out Rue's melody. My song, the hovercraft, they're too unfamiliar for this novice to pick up, but it mastered her handful of notes. The ones that mean she's safe. Good and safe, I say as I pass under its branch. We don't have to worry about her now. Good and safe. I've no idea where to go. The brief sense of home I had that one night with Rue has vanished. My feet wander this way and that until sunset. I'm not afraid, not even watchful. Which makes me an easy target. Except I'd kill anyone I met on sight. Without emotion or the slightest tremor in my hands. My hatred of the capital has not lessened my hatred of my competitors in the least. Especially the careers. They, at least, can be made to pay for Rue's death. No one materializes, though. There aren't many of us left, and it's a big arena. Soon they'll be pulling out some other device to force us together, but there's been enough gore today. Perhaps we'll even get to sleep. I'm about to haul my packs into a tree and make camp when a silver parachute floats down and lands in front of me. A gift from a sponsor. But why now? I've been in fairly good shape with supplies. Maybe Haymitch noticed my despondency and is trying to cheer me up a bit. Or could it be something to help my ear? I open the parachute and find a small loaf of bread. It's not the fine white capital stuff. It's made of dark ration grain and shaped in a crescent, sprinkled with seeds. I flash back to Peter's lesson on the various district breads in the training center. This bread came from District 11. I cautiously lift the still warm loaf. What must it have cost the people of District 11, who can't even feed themselves? How many would have had to do without to scrape up a coin and put it in the collection for this one loaf? It had been meant for Rue, surely, but instead of pulling the gift when she had died, they'd authorized Hamish to give it to me. As a thank you? 
or because, like me, they don't like to let debts go unpaid. For whatever reason, this is a first. A district gift to a tribute who's not your own. I lift my face and step up to the last falling rays of sunlight. My thanks to the people of District 11, I say. I want them to know I know where it came from. That the full value of their gift has been recognized. I climb dangerously high into a tree, not for safety, but to get as far away from today as I can. My sleeping bag is rolled neatly in Rue's pack. Tomorrow I'll sort through the supplies. Tomorrow I'll make a new plan. But tonight, all I can do is strap myself in and take tiny bites of the bread. It's good. It tastes of home. Soon the seal's in the sky. The anthem plays in my right ear. I see the boy from District 1. Rue. That's all for tonight. Six of us left, I think. Only six. With the bread still locked in my hands, I fall asleep at once. Sometimes when things are particularly bad, my brain will give me a happy dream. A visit with my father in the woods, an hour of sunlight and cake with prim. Tonight it sends me rue, still decked in her flowers, perched in a high sea of trees, trying to teach me to talk to the mockingjays. I see no sign of her wounds, no blood, just a bright, laughing girl. She sings songs I've never heard in a clear and melodic voice, on and on through the night. There's a drowsy in-between period when I can hear the last few strains of her music, although she's lost in the leaves. When I fully awaken, I'm momentarily comforted. I try to hold on to the peaceful feeling of the dream, but it quickly slips away, leaving me sadder and lonelier than ever. Heaviness infuses my whole body, as if there's liquid lead in my veins, I've lost the will to do the simplest tasks, to do anything but lie here, staring unblinkingly through the canopy of leaves. For several hours, I remain motionless. As usual, it's the thought of Prim's anxious face as she watches me from the screens back at home that breaks me from my lethargy. I give myself a series of simple commands to follow, like, Now you have to sit up, Katniss. Now you have to drink water, Katniss. I act in the orders with slow, robotic motions. Now you have to sort the packs, Katniss. Rue's pack holds my sleeping bag, her nearly empty water skin, a handful of nuts and roots, a bit of rabbit, her extra socks, and her slingshot. The boy from District 1 has several knives, two spare spearheads, a flashlight, a small leather pouch, a first aid kit, a full bottle of water, and a pack of dried fruit. A pack of dried fruit, out of all he might have chosen from. To me, this is a sign of extreme arrogance. Why bother to carry food when you have such a bounty back at camp? When you'll kill your enemies so quickly, you'll be home before you're hungry. I can only hope the other careers traveled so lightly when it came to food and now find themselves with nothing. Speaking of which, my own supply is running low. I finish off the loaf from District 11 and the last of the rabbit. How quickly the food disappears. All I have left are roux, roots, and nuts, the boy's dried fruit, and one strip of beef. Now you have to hunt, Katniss. 
I tell myself. I obediently consolidate the supplies I want into my pack. After I climb down the tree, I conceal the boys' knives and spearheads in a pile of rocks so no one else can use them. I've lost my bearings, what with all the meandering around I did yesterday evening, but I try and head back in the general direction of the stream. I know I'm on course when I come across Rue's third unlit fire. Shortly thereafter, I discover a flock of grooselings perched in the trees and take out three before they know what hit them. I return to Rue's signal fire and start it up, not caring about the excessive smoke. Where are you, Cato? I think as I roast the birds on Rue's roots. I'm still waiting right here. Who knows where the careers are now? Either too far to reach me, or too sure this is a trick, or... Is it possible? Too scared of me? They know I have the bow and arrows, of course. Cato saw me take them from Glimmer's body. But they've put two and two together? Or have they? Figured out I blew up the supplies and killed their fellow career? Possibly they think Thresh did this. Wouldn't he be more likely to revenge Rue's death than I would, being from the same district? Not that he ever took any interest in her. And what about Foxface? Did she hang around to watch me blow up the supplies? No. When I caught her laughing in the ashes the next morning, it was as if someone had given her a lovely surprise. I doubt they think Peta has lit this signal fire. Cato's sure he's as good as dead. I find myself wishing I could tell Peta about the flowers I put on Rue. That now I understand what he was trying to say on the roof. Perhaps if he wins the games, he'll see me on the victor's night when they replay the highlights of the games on a screen over the stage where we did our interviews. The winner sits in a place of honor on the platform, surrounded by their support crew. But I told Rue I would be there. For both of us. And somehow that seems even more important than the vow I gave to Prim. I really think I have a chance of doing it now. Winning. It's not just having the arrows or outsmarting the careers a few times, although those things help. Something happened when I was holding Rue's hand, watching the life drain out of her. Now I'm determined to revenge her, to make her loss unforgettable. And I can only do that by winning and thereby making myself unforgettable. I overcook the birds, hoping someone will show up to shoot, but no one does. Maybe the other tributes are out there beating one another senseless, which will be fine. Ever since the bloodbath, I've been featured on screens more than I care. Eventually, I wrap up my food and go back to the stream to replenish my water and to gather some. But the heaviness from the morning drapes back over me, and even though it's early evening, I climb a tree and settle in for the night. My brain begins to replay the events from yesterday. I keep seeing Rue speared, my arrow piercing the boy's neck. I don't know why I should even care about the boy. And then I realize he was my first kill. Along with other statistics they report to help people place their bets, every tribute has a list of kills. I guess technically I'd be credited for Glimmer and the girl from District 4, too, for dumping that nest onto them. But the boy from District 1 was the first person I knew would die because of my actions. Numerous animals have lost their lives at my hands, but only one human. I hear Gale saying, How different can it be, really? Amazingly similar in the execution. A bow pulled, an arrow shot, 
entirely different in the aftermath. I killed a boy whose name I didn't even know. Somewhere his family is weeping for him. His friends call for my blood. Maybe he had a girlfriend who really believed he would come back. But then I think of Rue's body, and I'm able to banish the boy from my mind. At least for now. It's been an uneventful day according to the sky. No deaths. I wonder how we'll get on until the next catastrophe drives us back together. If it's going to be tonight, I want to get some sleep first. I cover my good ear to block out the strains of the anthem, but then I hear the trumpets and sit up straight in anticipation. For the most part, the only communication in the tributes we'll get from the outside world is the nightly death toll, but occasionally there will be trumpets followed by an announcement. Usually this will be a call to a feast. When food is scarce, the game makers will invite the players to a banquet, somewhere known to all, like the cornucopia, as an inducement to gather and fight. Sometimes there's a feast, and sometimes there's nothing but a loaf of stale bread for the tributes to compete for. I wouldn't go in for the food, but this could be an ideal time to take out a few competitors. Claudius Templesmith's voice booms down from overhead, congratulating the six of us who remain, but he's not inviting us to a feast. He's saying something very confusing. There's been a rule change in the games. A rule change? That in itself is mind-bending, since we don't really have rules to speak of except don't step off your circle for 60 seconds and the unspoken rule about not eating one another. Under the new rule, both tributes from the same district will be declared winners if they are the last two alive. Claudius pauses, as if he knows we're not getting it, and repeats the change again. The news sinks in. Two tributes can win this year. If they're from the same district, both can live. Both of us can live. Before I stop myself, I call out Peter's name. Sai Vengeful is so right, the games have changed. They've changed in a lot of ways. You know, we've seen, of course, that uh, this, this specific rule change has been made, right? Which is, I mean, it's huge. The fact that both of the tributes from a single district can win. Two, two, two tributes can win if they're from the same district. So the only possibilities right now, I believe, are um, two of the careers... Um, it would have been possible yesterday for Thresh and Rue to make it, but of course Rue is no more, and Peta and Katniss, they both could make it. But that's not the only thing. That's not the only sort of game changer here. And later we'll talk about how these sort of game changes might be related in some way. Uh, but for now, we'll simply say uh, it's, it's along the lines of what Gems has kind of identified here. This is why Katniss is dangerous to the capital. I'm going to finish out what Gems says, but uh, sort of think about the, the individual moments here that Katniss does something a little bit strange, right? She keeps doing stuff that sort of indicates to other, other districts, like, I have some amount of respect for you. 
we're we're opponents in the games, but she recognizes uh, whether it's because she was sort of just grew up focusing too much on the day to day and not enough, you know, not not spending too much time focusing on how the uh, how the other districts sort of like you know are gonna kill everyone. Uh, excuse me, gonna kill somebody for, from her district, right? Doesn't think too much about the games themselves. She spends her days hunting and collecting for her family. That is what she has time to think about. But maybe it's partly from her father. Maybe some of it is Gail's influence. Maybe it's just the way that she is. But she has this sense it's really not the other districts that are the enemy. She has sort of short-term enemies who are individuals from other districts. But it's not, you know, the, uh, District 11 doesn't want anything bad for her. To the contrary, they send her a gift which would be massively expensive for this, this district to put together. And she keeps honoring people from other districts. Even in even moments where, you know, she she obviously has it out for these career tributes, but, you know, she... And she wouldn't be probably caught dead being allied with them, but, you know, we don't see her, like, saying, like, yeah, I wish I could kill everyone here in the arena and the capital and districts one, two, and four. When she rails, it's against the people who are in charge of this, the people who built the system and more especially who maintain it. Gems goes on to say... Uh, she unites people. She and Peta united the two tributes. Katniss worked with another district, even though it wasn't to her advantage. She now has caused a show of solidarity between two districts that should be fighting each other, not giving gifts to each other. Right? So it's catching on. You know, she even in districts, you know, uh, in District 12, where she's from, it's kind of a dog-eat-dog -dog world there, right? There is not enough to go around. I will remind you that as a that is a contrived uh, scarcity. That is a scarcity that is maintained by other groups of people, but there isn't quite enough to go around. And therefore, um, you know, kind of the, the fact that she's got plenty to eat sometimes means that other people don't. But she doesn't think of other people in the district as her enemy. And they honor her as well. And then as she continues, she continues to sort of make this impression that like, I don't, I, I know who, who is perpetrating this evil. And it's not District 11, it's not District 10, not District 9, not 8, etc., etc., etc. It is the people who continue to keep this system of power in place. And that's the thing. Looking around at all these other places, it, it's... it's there's a reason why, and I think this is, if I want y'all to gain one thing from this today, if I want you to gain one thing from what we've read today, I want you to remember that whenever you see somebody trying to show you, see, look, they've got a little bit more than you do. If the person trying to show you that has a lot more than everyone, keep a very, very close eye on them. If you've got somebody trying to show you, like, hey, check this out. Check this out. These people are on food stamps. They, they can get free food when you can't. When you are looking around and you see uh, somebody trying to show you, like, uh, see, this, this, uh, this group over here, they're able to get, um, they're able to sort of, like, be fast-tracked on, on certain educational uh, sort of, like, uh, uh, tracks. 
Whenever you see somebody trying to show you, see this other person has a little bit more than you do, look who's talking. Look at them. Examine them very carefully. Because if they have so much more than everyone else, what they're doing is they're trying to exert control. When the capital is trying to, uh, is trying to keep people trying to keep people from understanding, hey, everyone's under the boot here. The capital doesn't want to show um, uh, th th these moments of understanding. Katniss notes that oftentimes they will cut away from these moments when, uh, you know, for instance, when she is talking to Rue about how the district, the different districts are very alike, right? When she's having this conversation with Rue about how um, the, the people in District uh, 11 aren't able to eat a lot of the food. They sort of have to, they just subsist on rations. They grow all the food, but they don't get to eat it. This sort of understanding that, no, everyone's under the same boot here. Typically, that boot is being worn by the person who doesn't want you to know. Other people have it just as bad as you do. We don't want you to know that because we're the ones who have it good. Me with the boot. Me with the boot who keeps the boot on you and on them, but tells you, hey, look at them. They get food stamps. Hey, look at them. They, you know, they their, their taxes are, you know, so ever so slightly lower than yours. Meanwhile, I'm over here paying no taxes, but hey, well, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Stay under my boot. Stay under there. Hey, get back down there. So um, keep an eye out for it. Keep an eye out for it. If I want you to gain one thing from today, it is that. Watch the people who are telling you, hey, look at them over there. They've got like a little bit more than you do. Watch them. Watch them. Constant vigilance. Indeed. Indeed. Now, if you're if you're watching and uh, somebody's telling you, hey, these people, because I think we're, we've we've got more voices who are saying this nowadays. Hey, these people over here have so much more than everyone else combined. That's something to look at. That's something to look at. But when somebody is is saying somebody's trying to say, hey, look at this group. They've got slightly more than you do. Those are ones to watch out with. Though those are ones to watch out for. Those are sneaky ones. Remember to say unified. Remember, if we're all under the same boot, let's not be picking fights with other ants underneath the boot. Let's chew through the damn boot. Hey, I love y'all. <laughs> I do. It's true.